We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, continuing from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Let's read these words from Solomon together. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this, is all, this, is, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind." I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. As has been the case throughout, Solomon confronts us with a huge question this morning. And the question that I want us to consider, seeing his wisdom here, is why would we do anything? Why would we accomplish anything? Why would we work towards anything in this life? And, and I, I mean it on the level of our, our labors at work. So in other words, the jobs that we do, the, the, work, the work that we do in the world that we try to do a good job with, uh, but also other things. Like, why would we work towards having a better character? Why would we train up our kids in righteousness? Because when you actually think about the results of our work, as Solomon just forces us to do this morning, he asks the big question, why? Why would I do anything, or maybe to put it more specifically, why would I do anything well? Just to get our bearings a little bit, uh, we're in, in what some people have called the de- really the depressing section of Ecclesiastes, right? There wasn't a lot of light and hope, and, and you know, it wasn't cheerful uh, this morning as we read this. 
But the way that I've been describing it, and the way that I think is, is accurate to understand it is, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is honest and faithful. It's, it's giving us an honest look. If we really look at the way that, that we experience life, if we are honest about the frustrations and honest about the ends and the, the goals of our life, we will see that under the sun, that's his perspective, there is a futility to it. There is, uh, there is an honest reckoning with, with how hard things are. But through that, to not abandon God. And, I, and that's the pattern that we see throughout Ecclesiastes, as we're going to see again today, as he experiences life under the sun. He says, look, when I think under the sun, that's my perspective, I don't know why I would do anything well. That's not the only perspective, but it is a perspective that we need. That honest perspective. If we can't be honest about life as we experience it, we lack wisdom. And honestly, when we look at life, a lot of things feel like a treadmill. A lot of things are cyclical. A lot of things are exhausting. Including this idea of accomplishing things. Why would I work toward any goal? To put it as bluntly as he can in this section of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, we die anyway. The end is the same for everyone. I think it's a relevant question. It's one that some of you are asking in your workplaces. Why am I doing this? Why do I continue in a job uh, that I dislike? It's a question some of you dads and your mo- and moms are, are asking. Like, why, why would I continue to try to disciple my child or try to teach them? Some, they seem hardwired from the beginning, don't they? I mean, There's some futility in trying to teach kids to be a certain way. Let's be honest about that. Some of you are asking it as it relates to your sin struggles. Why would I try to overcome this? I tend to never be able to accomplish anything in this area. Why would I continue to seek to grow? I'm still a sinner. I still go back to the same things. There's a futility to it. And if we can't answer that question, if we can't answer the question of why do anything, then we begin on a small ways or maybe in big ways to disengage from life. It's inevitable that if we can't connect why we're doing something, that we would slowly or maybe quickly disengage from doing anything. In Japan, for instance, there is a whole phenomenon called hikikimori, where people in ages 20 to 30 typically, but sometimes older, they stop doing anything at all. They see the treadmill. They see the expectations placed on them. They see the, the, the future, like you have to make this much money. They see all of these cultural things, and they stop doing anything. They just live at home and eat and drink and don't do anything. And while many of us in this room have stumbled in here, we're not quite to the hikikimori stage. We're not like totally disengaged from life. We also lose energy for doing. And doing things well. The question, why do anything, is a good one. And it really comes back to these 
core mo motivations. I remember hearing uh, years ago, if you want to arrive at your core motivation, here's an exercise that you can do. And I think it's a good exercise. Uh, I don't even remember where I read this or where I heard this, but the person said, uh, ask why five times. <laughs> ask why five, and you will arrive at your core motivation. Just keep asking yourself, why, 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 and you will arrive there. I would say that's a good exercise to arrive at your worldview. Because when you ask why five times or seven times or however many times it takes, you tend to arrive at what you, what you believe to be the most thing that's true. Here's an example. Why am I working this job? That's your first why. Answer, to make money. Why do I make money? Answer, feed my family. Why should I feed my family? Well, because I'm responsible for them. Why am I responsible for them? And then you get to theology. Because God gave them to me to be responsible for. Why did he give them to me? For his own good purposes and glory. Like that's where you end up, right? You end up in the heavens or you end up with whatever worldview you hold when you ask why over and over again. And that's what the preacher is going to do. Just to give you a summary, the preacher Solomon is going to say, why would I do this? And he's going he's to keep backing away from the, from the issue until he arrives at this, at the God of the universe. And, and we're going to get there as well. And he's going to give us a hint, though you have to understand the whole book to understand his whole part of this design. But he's going to give us a hint at the end of when he backs up the furthest way that he can, he arrives at something that gives him hope. And we're going to do the same. But you have to go through the frustrations first. To get to his solution, we have to wrestle with his frustration. And I think that's a wise thing to do. So we're going to get to that, his solution, but first let's wrestle through his frustrations. There's two main frustrations we could say that Solomon is experiencing when he thinks about doing anything meaningful. It can be broken down into the frustrations while living and the frustrations after dying. So as a living person, Solomon's thinking, I'm alive right now and I'm frustrated. But when I think about the future and I think about my death, I'm also frustrated. And so those are the two categories we'll look at this morning. First, the frustrations while living. There are two. First is this heavy one. Death is universal. I mean, Solomon goes there. He doesn't hold back. Uh, he goes straight for, for the jugular here. When I think about doing things, I arrive at this frustration. Death comes to everyone, whether you do things or not. Let's see how it unfolds. Verse 13 starts out positive enough, right? Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So far, so good. He's saying, look, to be wise, this is something that we would like to think is in the Bible, right? To be wise is better than to be foolish. Generally speaking, you have your eyes in your head. To be able to see things is its own gift. To not be a fool has a great benefit. Yet, second part of verse 14 is the killer. <laughs> and yet, 
I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For the wise, as for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. He begins down this path of, hey, to live a more enlightened life surely would be a better life. But then he thinks about it and he's like, it would be marginally better. That's what he's saying. It would be marginally better to be more aware, to be a, a wise person. But at the end, when I consider the brevity of life, when I consider everything, I wonder, is it enough? Because it's hard work to be wise. Why would I do that when in the end we die? Well, that's where he's going, but in the meantime, there's a second frustration. It's not as though living then is free of frustration. Death is universal, he says, but secondly, restlessness and sorrow are inescapable. Restlessness and sorrow are inescapable. Look at verse uh, 22 with me. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Part of the problem with doing anything, Solomon says, while you're alive, is that the work is never done and it stays with us. Again, we're, we're not just talking about what, the day jobs that we do, but any endeavor that's, that we seem to think is worth doing. If something is going well, even, it's going to burden us. It's going to vex us. It's going to keep us up at night. It's going to be the case that anything meaningful actually gives us extra things to weigh on us. Our hearts keep us up in the night. There's a restlessness, and that restlessness gets in our bones. And from time to time, the frustration comes out. This is just the honest reflection of living life under the sun. Solomon says we get tired of doing the right thing. And we don't feel the sense of peace because we're wondering who should we please or what could we do more or how can we do it better. I love this quote from Marilyn Robinson, my favorite uh, author. Novelist, she says, the spirit of the times is a kind of joyless urgency. The spirit of the times is a kind of joyless urgency. That's what he's talking about here. There's a even in there's a restlessness, there's a vexation, even in doing good things. There's an urgency, but that urgency is not rewarded always. So often it's joyless. So it's a valid question. Why would we do it? Not only restlessness, but also sorrow is inescapable. He says, there's sorrow. <laughs> Verse 23, all his days are full of sorrow. No matter what we do with our lives, things, one, one, you know, one of a number of different things are going to come to us. Cancer, dementia, a failing economy, a bad situation, an injury. It would be one thing if, if our labor at doing good things would give us 
however hard it is, however restless it makes us at night, if it gave us a shot at a future that we could control. But we can't. On the contrary, we are guaranteed to lose control. Guaranteed to be sick. Terminably so. Guaranteed to lose control and guaranteed hardship. So, why do anything? Some of you know my, one of my favorite short stories um, by J.R.R. Tolkien. So not the Lord of the Rings. But he has a little story called Leaf by Niggle. And um, the story of, of a, a, a man named Niggle who was a painter. And I'm convinced that he wrote this story based on Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I, it just lines up so perfectly. But in this story, Niggle is a, is a painter. He's a small, quiet man. And we're told that he, you know, he's, he's the kind of painter that's better at painting leaves than trees. He's a, he's a detail guy. That's the way it describes it. He is zoomed in. He is a painter that knows how to capture things close up. But he gets this vision of a tree in his imagination. And the tree is so big that he can't contain it. And, but it, it fuels his imagination. And he starts working on this art project that will be the rest of his life. The rest of his life, he keeps seeing this tree in his mind, but one canvas can't capture it. He keeps grabbing all these canvases and trying to put together all these leaves. He works on individually, but he sees the, the edges of something that is beautiful and beyond his comprehension. But the rest of his life, after he receives this vision, is full of frustration. Frustration with the endeavor itself. As he works on it, he's always, it's always getting bigger in his mind, and he can't control it. And he never really knows if it's very good. He knows some of the individual pieces are, but he can't see the whole. Also, he's frustrated because he keeps being interrupted. There's a knock knocking on the door. It's his neighbor, his neighbor who doesn't work at all, who's given in, who doesn't do anything anymore. And this neighbor always needs help in his garden. And Niggle is pulled away from his dream artwork so that he can work in his neighbor's garden. And then his frustration is also increased because he knows that soon he'll have to take his journey. In Tolkien's story, there is an inspector who comes. And the inspector, this is death, comes to take them away at some point. And when the inspector calls... You have to leave and go to the different country. And every day he wonders, is the inspector going to knock on the door? Am I going to be pulled away into the other country? And so he works frantically. It's a picture of our labor, our lives, that's full of ambition, but also restlessness and sorrow. And then it always ends in death. The frustrations while living. But then as you think about the future, there's also frustrations after dying. Solomon thinks about the end and what it will have meant. And he finds a couple of more frustrations. First, after dying, there's no control. There's no control. Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil with which I toiled under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. 
Yet he will be master of all, for which I have toiled, and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. There's no control. After we die, we don't control the things that we've worked for. Your work will be dispensed to your children or to a charity or whatever it may be, and you don't know what your children will do with it, and you don't know that the charity will be well run, and there's all kinds of things that you can't control from the grave. It's depressing when you think about it. And Solomon already senses this. Solomon the Great, this will in fact happen to him. It happens in history. Solomon represents the peak of Israel's history, right? There has never been more wealth, never been more wisdom, never been more power, never more geopolitical influence. Israel is in its high point right now. It's only going to get worse. When his sons come after him, they will literally divide the kingdom, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. They will dispense all of his wealth and wisdom. The gold that is so plentiful in Israel right now will soon be decorating the halls of Assyria and Babylon as they go into exile. The golden age will be over. Solomon knows this is not just in theory. He already senses, I know. Who, he's what he says at the beginning. What can man do that comes after the king? In a sense, that's about him, but it's also about his children, right? I, I'm already the second king of Israel, the third king of Israel. What do I do after David has established the throne? He's already he's done a huge, significant work. It's only downhill from here. And he can already sense that what comes after the king will be the king, the, the, the best king will be only frustration. It'll only get worse. We can't control what happens after we die with the work that we've done. Niggle, the painter, who's working on his canvas, eventually, eventually he receives the knock-knock at the door of the inspector to take him to the other country. As he's leaving, he's told something so seemingly cruel. This inspector tells him that the canvases that are in his art room will now be used to patch up his neighbor's house. His neighbor, who doesn't do anything, has rain coming in from outside and needs a way to patch his house. And so they just take the artwork, the life's work of Niggle the painter and put patches up his neighbor's house. Niggle weeps as he leaves with the inspector. Similar to the way Solomon seems to be weeping here. Look, I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. There's a despair in that. We have no control after death. Your life's work will be used to patch up someone else's life. And no one will fully appreciate what went into it. There's no control. <laughs> one more. 
just to pile on one more thing. There's no memory. No memory. Would all of the things that you have done be worth it if in the end you could be recognized as such for doing this work? If appropriate honor was paid to your name, well, look at verse 16. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long been forgotten. Can't count on your memory lasting. Sure, we have Solomon's name, even though he doesn't identify himself in Ecclesiastes. But we don't know one one one-hundredth of of the wisdom that he had, of what he did. There is no memory from generations. How many of us can name our great-grandparents? Maybe a few of you can. But if you can name them, what did they do? What did they spend their life doing? What did they accomplish? What were they like? Just a couple of generations. And it's gone. This is what happened to Niggle with his paintings. The neighbor's house blows away and it's given time and abandoned. Eventually it breaks down and somebody stumbles across one section of a leaf or one leaf painting of Niggle's work and they recognize it's genius. And they put it up in their house and they admire it. Then that person dies and their house and all their possessions are sold and the one leaf, leaf by Niggle, it goes to a museum. Another generation passes, the museum burns down and leaf by Niggle is no more. Two generations is typically what we work with. So, to go to the very bottom, <laughs> to summarize what we've said so far. While you are alive, your work will be restless, sorrowful, and whether you do a good job or not, you will die. After death, you will have no control over what you have done, and your memory will also die. So under the sun, why would we do anything of substance? I wonder if you've wrestled with that question honestly. If you have gone to the depths that Solomon has here. Because we can become tempted that in thinking that, that our endeavors will matter for some reason, some other reason. Perhaps you're still internally believing that that someone at some point will recognize you and will make you feel totally satisfied that the work you did is acknowledged by some superior or some person in your family or some child who you know, finally calls you blessed. Perhaps you're waiting on someone to say that your work is worthwhile and that, that it's commemorated forever and that you can be at peace because what you have done has really mattered. Solomon says, wisdom requires that we face the honesty of this. Don't skip past his honesty. In verse 17 and 18, maybe words that we wonder or even in the Bible. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after a wind. I hated all my toil. How can someone say, I hate life? I hate my work. And then you start to think about the Bible and you think, 
how common that, that thread really is. Didn't Job say something similar? Would have been better that I had not been born? Didn't Jonah? Didn't Elijah? But taking the case of Job, it's important to see that Job hated what had happened to him, but he resisted, he resisted the temptation to curse God and die. And so he is called faithful even in his hatred of what has happened to him. Even in the honesty, he is faithful because he did not curse God as his wife told him to do. And so Solomon never gets to the point where he says, I hate God. He says, I hate what could be accomplished under the sun. I hate everything that is, that's just filled up with futility. If it's its own purpose, if it's its own thing, then it is useless. But he never curses God. See, honesty does not mean unfaithfulness. You need to be honest with where you are. However, faithfulness always leads us toward God, not away from Him. And that is what Solomon does in all of these, these ramblings, these honest things that he talks about the extent of, of life under the sun. He then anchors it, a hint. He's going to anchor the whole book, by the way, in this. But we're going to get there. We have to walk with him slowly. But he, he knows that he needs to hint at it here. He, gets, he goes to the hand of God. And that's where he finds the solution. The hint of a solution. Let's read these verses in verse 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. There are two hints we need to cling to as we close this morning. The first hint that Solomon gives us of this hope is this. Everything is a gift from the hand of God. Everything is a gift from the hand of God. That's the realization. That's the transformation. He says, look, when you think about all the things that we do, all the endeavors, eating and drinking and all my toil, everything that I could possibly do, we can't do any of those things without God enabling us. So when did we start thinking of these things that he's given us as gifts as the keys to our satisfaction? Why not go to the source, he says. Why not look at the hand of God as everything? See him as everything. And then whatever else is extra, whatever toil, whatever food, whatever drink we get is from his hand and can't be enjoyed unless it's given to us by him. Since we can't have those extras without God anyway. And so he leads us to this temporary solution. We will uncover the reason for doing anything when we see that every activity is a gift to be received, not a work to be achieved. 
When we arrive at this conclusion, we see that just the partial, the outline of the solution. The reason for doing anything is that everything that God gives us is from His hand. It's His activity. It has to be received as a gift. It can't be worked for. If you are gathering and collecting like the sinner talked about here, then you are just working under the sun. If you just keep building up things, if you keep wanting success, if you keep wanting affirmation, if you keep wanting some kind of external support, then that business, that business that is an unhappy business, it is one that is doomed to futility. But the contrast is between the one who has received from the hand of God. We don't do anything in this world without God. Everything is from His hand. We can't even breathe with God, without God. We can't think. We're, we're even passively born into this world. We didn't come into this world to do something. We were received into this world. We live in God's world. So every accomplishment is ultimately passive to us. Everything is because of what God has done. And so when we think about our memory, and we think about our accomplishments, and we think about what we can do, our wisdom, it, it's a dead end. You submit to Him and give your life to Him. He gives it meaning through the gifts that He gives. Look at the contrast in verse 26. For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. You see the contrast. There are those who please God and there are sinners. Literally, offenders. How do I know if I'm a sinner or an offender or if I please God? The answer is right there. It's the one who pleases God is the one who receives from God. If you receive from Him wisdom, knowledge, and joy, then He is pleased with you. If you are a sinner, then you just collect and try to get as much as you can. That's your business. But it's an empty business. And under the sun, that is meaningless and cyclical and frustrating. The Scriptures tell us that you can be one with whom God is pleased. How do you do that? You receive from Him. You receive His gifts. And as the Scriptures unfold, we see His greatest gift is Christ Himself. Christ is the gift of the world. And without Him, looking big picture at the Scripture, then all of us are just gathering and collecting until the end. We're just doing the work that's given to us. But with Christ... We can actually have everything given to us in His Son, Jesus. And then we can look at life differently. I've already received the greatest gift. I've already received everything I need. And therefore, joy, wisdom, knowledge, whatever comes my way, I will receive as from the hand of the Lord. But if I'm working towards those things as the end, it will end in meaninglessness. But if I work towards Christ as the end, then everything else is extra. Seek first the kingdom, and everything else will be added, in other words. With Christ, 
we can experience the gifts of God and even joy in the toil that we are given to do. The reason to do it is because God has given it to us to do. It ends in God. When you ask why, 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 it ends in His purposes. And His purpose is to give us the gift of His Son. To give us everything we need for life and godliness. And to switch our mentality from what I can achieve to what I can receive from Him. There is one other hint as we close. The second hint of the hope of why we would do something is that everything will be sorted by the hand of God. Everything is a gift from the hand of God and everything will be sorted by the hand of God. The last verse, not a lot of people give a lot of attention to, but I think it's important. The, God's given the, the offender and the one who pleases him, but to the sinner, it says at the end here, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to who to the one who pleases God. In the end, God gives to those who receive him from him. Everything comes to us. In other words, there is an inheritance. Doesn't Jesus say the meek will inherit the earth? Here he's saying, look, you can live your life trying to gather and 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 collect and do things but in the end God is the one who will sort the riches to those who receive from him eventually the whole earth is filled only with those who please God who receive from him at the end of the story of Tolkien Niggle comes into that other country comes into the new heavens and the new earth and he comes in with pain, the pain that he's left all of his earthly work behind and is patching up his neighbor's house. But he forgets all of that when he sees the tree. The tree that was in his mind is before him. The one that he couldn't paint properly, the one that he couldn't capture, he now sees. And he sees that the tree is in perfect niggle style. His work has been incorporated into the kingdom. His work, importantly, is also not finished. It's an unfinished tree. And now he can labor. He can endeavor meaningfully to keep working on the tree, but without the frustrations of living and dying. All the frustrations are gone. Without the restlessness. Without the sorrow. Without death. Death has died. It's no more. He's in the new country. And so he receives what he has always wanted. To capture this, this beauty that was in his mind. And we are built for that. When we come into the heavenly kingdom, we inherit the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. And so everything comes to those who please God. Let's pray.